This is Opinionated. I don't really have a full understanding of it, but that won't stop me from having an opinion. That's why we're here. Join Features Editor Ben Schiller and reporters Anna Batakova and Danny Nelson. You know, crypto is no longer just about money. It's about culture now. Isn't Wikipedia already a DAO? Part of politics and part of sports and part of gaming. And it's not just like the future of money anymore. As they push the conversation further with their own criticisms and reactions to the latest Bitcoin and crypto news from around the world. It believes crypto is bad and it wants it out. I'm even old enough to remember when Microsoft was a kind of cool company in Silicon Valley. Ben, you're old enough to remember when telegrams came over a wire under the sea. (laughs) And just a reminder... Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hi, everybody. This is Opinionated. I'm Ben Schiller here at Coindesk and joined today by Anna Bedekova. Hello, guys. And uh, Danny Nelson is out today. I think he's sick, but he'll be back next week. Hey, Anna, how's it going? Hey, Ben. It's complicated. It's like the, all this war stuff uh, oh on God. the Ukrainian border. Yeah. I could not even fathom what that must be like. Uh, Yeah, everybody's horrified, but probably I'll get distracted from this horror and do this podcast now about Bitcoin and women in tech and DAOs. (laughs) Well, I'm a little worried about our tech team because half of them are in Ukraine. So uh, who knows what will happen with them? Yeah, it's been really scary and for tech people in Ukraine too. So, Well, uh, we got a very good guest today. So uh, that's Lee Quinn, uh, who uh, used to be, uh, and sadly is no longer a tech reporter with us here at Coindesk. And she was, I think it's safe to say, a legend in her field and and much admired and much missed. So um, good afternoon or good morning. I think you're in California. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, actually, Lee has been uh, one of the very best reporters in crypto. One of the coolest, badass girls uh, in Bitcoin also. That's my personal opinion. But after Lee left Coindesk, which we're not happy about, she started a bunch of uh, cool things. She co-founded the Association of Crypto Journalists and Researchers and a magazine about women in business and tech. And this magazine is called Defem. Am I pronouncing it right? It's French. Perfect. Um, yes, defend. There is a bunch of interesting things happening with this magazine. First of all, it's printed. You should subscribe. And then this like beautifully printed edition. I, I haven't touched it with my hands, but I saw some pictures like really nicely printed thing will get shipped to you. And it's also considered to be kind of a collectible item, rightly. Like yeah. it, it's, it should be living long. And it's also managed by a DAO on Bitcoin. Tell a little more about it, Lee. Like, what is the magazine about and how is it going so far? By the way, you just sold the first printed issue recently. Yeah, so there's a lot going on there. By the way, we're also in stores, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Whole Foods, and Chapter Books in Canada. Cool. Um, In addition to being able to order things online. So I guess just to maybe back to the beginning, how this all started. Defem is a community-driven media project that prints an annual magazine, and we started as a crowdfunding campaign using Gitcoin, which is basically like an Ethereum-powered Kickstarter. That Gitcoin campaign was actually not run by me. It was run by the Defiant founder, Camila Russo, who's one of my co-founders of the magazine. And roughly 400 people contributed around $37,000 in one week for this crowdfunding campaign. And that's when we were like, oh, goodness. Okay, so there's demand for this and we need to figure out what that means. I mostly orchestrated more than 80 freelancers and several volunteers to produce the first product and launch an online community as of December of 2021. 
So we're still very, very early, having just launched, gotten our first product out and figuring out even what this thing means. And today we have roughly 700 women in our community chat and are slowly organizing a DAO-inspired structure. I don't know if I would call it quite a DAO yet in order to make that one-off crowdfunding campaign into something more sustainable. As you mentioned, we started with Bitcoin, a Bitcoin multi-sig that are managed by five community members, which does not include Camila nor myself, to start a gradual and moderate and very slow decentralization process. So this is really interesting. Why DAO? Can you just tell a little bit, what is the role of the DAO in the process and how it will function? Like who will be participating? What people are going to do there? What's the idea of it? Yeah, so when we first started with the crowdfunding campaign, we didn't really know what it was we wanted to do beyond make amazing media and experiences uh, for women by women, especially those that work in the tech industry or are interested in finance. And once we realized, okay, there's demand for this product, then there's a certain like path you can go down, right? You can seek VC funding and tell everyone you're going to be the next Cosmo. Traditional magazines, as everyone knows, is not the most lucrative product. And honestly, even the ones that are successful are evolving right now, trying to figure out how to get users more involved, how to get community people more involved, how to be less of uh, broadcasting and more co-creation. So even successful magazines right now are rethinking their model. So, okay, maybe deciding we're going to make a traditional media company that seeks VC funding and, and fast scaling is not necessarily the best method for this. A DAO basically allows people to pool funds and earn money together and then decide together how it is they want to allocate those funds. So I think that was much more in line with the idea that we had of co-creation, of not just the, the media company deciding what it is we're going to cover and how it is we're going to do things, and then trying to sell that product to an audience, but to co-create along with the audience. And one of the ways you give power to your readers is to give them the direct ability to allocate funds. So how do people become a part of, of this DAO? Uh, right now, it's very, very slow and small and gradual. So right now we have five Bitcoin key holders and are just starting to get together our first cohort of people who are interested in ETH multi-sigs as well. At the moment, there is a $1,000 membership tier for prospective key holders. That's because that's literally what it costs us in order to get you an account with Casa um, or maybe to get you onboarded through on-chain to other companies that provide um, individual concierge service. The reason we wanted to start with that is because we didn't want me and Camila to be the only people that uh, someone could come to if they had problems with their wallets. That doesn't give them the direct power to allocate funds. That gives them chores that they're supposed to do with our help. You know what I mean? We wanted these people to be able to independently operate their wallets. As we've been learning through this process, actually, we can probably in the future make it cheaper. But for now, for the first year, there's a lot of just hands-on, like you have to be willing to own and operate a wallet frankly, which a lot of people aren't interested in doing. Some people have DAOs that issue tokens, and then all you have to do to participate in the DAO is to own that token. And there's a lot of reasons to go with that model, but that's not the model that we're starting with. How many people are in it right now? And maybe how many expressed interest in participating in the DAO? Yeah, so I think it's really hard to say right now who's in the DAO that's not a key holder, because we do have hundreds of women who are interested in learning, but they are not key holders yet nor have they allocated funds. Maybe they've allocated a small amount of funds to the crowdfunding campaign, or maybe they've purchased a product. But I think it's okay and good in a DAO to have different levels of participation. If someone just wants to buy a magazine and join the group chat, that's great. And they can still be involved in the community. Uh, so if we're thinking about that, and we're thinking about several hundred women, 
if we're thinking about women who are actually operating wallets, learning how to operate wallets and manage like the nitty gritty of tech, I'd say we're talking about dozen tops and that's being very generous because a lot of the people in that dozen are still learning about key management. And that's really the most important step in terms of participating in this DAO. So that's also education. That's cool. So people, yeah. people are learning about this stuff. That's what I, exactly what I wanted to create was something where someone can come in not knowing anything. And if they choose, progress towards greater responsibility and greater value that they're getting back, right? Like understanding how to manage your own assets. It's a huge amount of value. But maybe someone doesn't have two hours to spend learning about a hardware wallet. In that case, just coming to the events or buying the magazine or hanging out in the group chat is sufficient and great and kind of creates this open and welcoming space for people who are curious but not confident about being able to participate yet. So can we just talk about the magazine itself and, and, and the need for uh, something that is uh, for female entrepreneurs and for that community? I mean, I mean, I feel a bit embarrassed about Coiners sometimes because we are still quite sort of male dominated and a lot of the people we have on our pages are frankly quite male. Just, just talk about like the need for alternative media like that. Yeah, so that's normal because actually men often have more money than women. And cryptocurrency is a very expensive hobby. So <laughs> it's very, very normal that across any event that you're going to, any company you're working at, any publication you're reading, if they're talking about fintech, crypto in particular, but even, even more broadly, fintech, you're going to have a majority male audience. And what that means is that the stories and events that might be profitable for that audience may not appeal to young ladies, <laughs> just quite frankly, you know, like if I go to a Bitcoin event, it's probably going to be like a steak dinner and not a brunch. And I just wanted to create exactly the kinds of medias and experiences that I wanted to have. Some of the content in the magazine, for example, deals with leaving an abusive relationship. Another one of the articles deals with how to think about career planning when you want to have a kid. It's going to get harder to get promoted. You're going to have just different availability. Like, how do you think about that if career is really important to you? Um, and these are all kinds of articles that I don't think I would have gotten accepted at TechCrunch or, the, or a lot of the other tech publications that I publish for, not because they're bad topics, they're just not the most profitable topic to publish and publications want to serve the audience what they want. So I guess part of the, the desire for having the magazine was to create, create the kind of content that we wanted that would help us with the life choices that we are making um, and the interests that we have. So just talking about crypto in general, I mean, do you think it's getting better for women? Do you think it's becoming more inclusive? And there is this sort of idea that women are more sort of prominent and powerful in this community than they were in, say, Web2 or the original internet. I think that across all industries, women today have more power and more money than they did 50 years ago. I think industries that are younger have less bureaucratic barriers, like less institutional sexism that keep women from excelling. So you'll see more women in it, um, whether that field be 3D graphics or that field be crypto. So that being said, I'm very happy to be living in a time and place where women have more power and more money than they ever did before in the past. Actually, talking about the crypto industry, Lee, you've been watching this field like forever. Yeah, I think. When did you start covering crypto? Was it 2017? It was 2017, so definitely not forever. It's like the previous epoch or like two epochs yeah. apart. Anyway, I'm curious about your observation, how this field has been changing in general recently. Is it changing for good or are we just seeing like more noise and madness breaking the signal? What's your observations about this industry like evolving going forward? 
Yeah, I definitely think there's more noise and craziness. I think that we've officially reached a time or a place where we can say the crypto is quote unquote mainstream. And what I mean by that is I can no longer wear my Bitcoin t-shirt to the gym because people actually know what it is and start asking me totally. Yeah, all the guys at the gym want to talk about my Bitcoin t-shirts. So now, but, now it's a pickup line, you know? <laughs> yeah, but that wasn't the case in 2018. I, I remember when I wore a Bitcoin shirt on a plane and one of the security guards asked me if I was into K-pop and I was like, K-pop? He's like, oh, your shirt, it's for a boy band, right? Uh-huh. Definitely. So the fact that now everyday common people recognize Bitcoin symbols and terminology and crypto symbols and terminology means that we have reached quote unquote mainstream with all both the good and the bad that entails. Isn't it BTS, not BTC? Yes. I mean, he, he was incorrect about the boy band's name, but the okay. point is he saw me and he thought to himself, boy band fan, you know? Not I like- don't even know that boy band. How do you guys know it? <laughs> I didn't until initial, people so I thought to know BTC. Yeah. Yeah. And also a, a bunch of DAO experiments all through these years. And I think you've been watching them, right? Uh, when you thought about your DAO. So can you speak about like, what would you consider like kind of good examples, bad examples? And why did you decide to make your DAO on Bitcoin, which I think is kind of extra challenging because uh, the Bitcoin protocol is not that flexible for these things as, for example, Ethereum. Yeah. Actually, I feel like that's a misconception. The Ethereum protocol is not flexible or I mean like, okay, it's flexible, but in the, the things that we're using it for, that flexibility is not necessarily what comes into play. There is a huge difference in terms of Ethereum DAOs and people who use Bitcoin multisig, for sure. I'm actually also personally a founding member of the Komarabi Collective, which is an Ethereum-centric investment DAO that uses GnosisSafe, uh, particularly focused on investing in women and importing women in the blockchain space. So I was surprised to find when I started learning more about uh, Bitcoin multisigs that they can do a lot of the same things that this Ethereum DAO and the other Ethereum DAOs, frankly, can do. The process is different, but it's not harder. Plus, it's way cheaper because Ethereum gas fees are insane. I think the reason that Ethereum DAOs are more widespread is social and not technical. It's easier to find people who want to play with their Ether money and are willing to teach newbies than it is for beginners uh, who prefer to save Bitcoin. Plus, a lot of companies financially supported by Ethereum co-founders like Vitalik Buterin and Joe Lubin make tutorials and guides and events and experiences that help people who want to experiment with ETH. While Bitcoin education tends to focus on concepts like inflation or cryptography, rather than the practical steps that a beginner would need in order to experiment. So I think that's why you see a lot more Ethereum DAOs. It's just more educational materials available. But Bitcoin multisigs can do a lot of the same things. Maybe you can share what you have been learning building the DAO, socially, technically, I guess it's not an easy thing to build a DAO, but are there anything you would share with people who are thinking about building one? What to pay attention to? What are the dangers? You know, what are the possible mistakes? Like, is it hard? Is it easy to build a DAO? It's totally hard. And anyone who says it's easy is already rich. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a lot of things that I've been learning while uh, participating in building DAOs. So the first thing is that the vast majority of the labor is communications and actually not technical. The vast majority of the labor is getting everyone to join a group call to talk about what it is they want to spend the money on or like how they're getting the money, like 
to, to get together and work together, which anyone who's ever worked in an office understands, right? Like the vast majority of the work is coordinating lots of people. And once you get above three people, things get complicated. When you get to 300 people, you need to start having documentation from every meeting. Not everyone is going to be able to make it. So really 90% of the work is coordination and communication. The second thing that I've been learning is about the differences between different kinds of multi-sig tools. So Bitcoin multi-sig tools and also Ethereum multi-sig tools. I'm definitely still more of a beginner when it comes to Ethereum multi-sig tools, but they can often do the same things just in different ways. And no one so far has actually built multi-sig tools that are helpful for using a DAO that are superior to a girl with a phone calling up all the people in the DAO and sending everyone an email. Literally, there's a million tools. And I think that eventually we will get to a place where there's tools that actually reduce the manual labor. But at the moment, you don't need to be a tech wizard or expert, actually. You just need to have someone who will help you learn multi-sig and you can pay for that with, you know, Casa or Unchained or, or a variety of other services, Defem, and just be willing to spend maybe an hour a month for a year. That's the barrier to entry. You don't have to be able to understand smart contracts and, you know, the flexibility of the protocol. If, if you can use your computer and you have $1,000, you could probably participate in a DAO. Sounds uh, refreshingly human. Um, <laughs> I mean, do you think that uh, the future of media companies is this kind of DAO collective cooperative sort of model? How do you think the kind of traditional concept like Coindesk, which is actually a sort of strangely centralized medium for, you know, something that's supposed to be decentralized, do you think that's the future and how will that play with this new decentralized model? So... I don't know yet whether or not DAOs will be a mainstream media phenomenon in terms of massive companies with widespread audiences. Because when you do something by democratic process, everything gets slower, everything gets more expensive, everything gets more confusing. Centralization is great for organization. And it's so amazing for tax paperwork. Like the difference between orchestrating a group of 15 people with their own wallets and their own accountants and their own ways of keeping records versus having a job where you have the HR department tell you how to sign the paperwork and what to do. It's just night and day. So I don't know whether or not people will see enough value that they're getting from DAOs in order to justify the bureaucratic costs and the, the time that it will cost them. I will say, however, that maybe DAOs and media organizations, at least in this beginning part, can easily coexist because you can do things a lot more flexibly with a DAO that your employer would probably never let you do, but have the stability of that employer with that set structure and organization, which DAOs are a little bit uh, chaos with the masses. Interesting. Essentially, you should mention uh, taxes. We're doing this tax week at uh, Coindesk at the moment. There's a bunch of articles about the endless, endless, endless complications of uh, crypto taxes. And it's just, you know, taxes are already horrible anyway. And now you kind of introduce all this sort of added complexity on top of it. You want to know the dirty secret of the DAO space? Go ahead. Most people are not thinking about their taxes and legal obligations when they go in and are panicking right now. I mean, we're talking about DAOs handling hundreds of millions of dollars worth of assets who are like just now considering like, oh, maybe the government might want to know something about them. No paper trail or trying to figure out a paper trail as they go. So it's not that they've invented anything radically new. It's that they ignored the parts that were hard and kept people from launching businesses. Right. Really interesting. I mean, this has been a story of, of crypto all the way through. I think people go into Bitcoin and they suddenly realize, oh, I've got to pay taxes on it. And then it's like NFTs and, oh my God, we've got to pay taxes on it. So I think people are in 
kind of a nasty surprise in two or three years when they the IRS catches up with them. I have one more dirty secret hot take, then I promise I'll stop. And, and I want to yeah. hear actually yeah. more about your perspective here on this. I've noticed something really interesting participating in different DAOs, uh, right? So I'm still a, quite a middle-class person. Um, and the way that people will uh, treat me in my DAO or treat people in my DAO, uh, frankly, is very different than the investment DAO that I participate in, other investment DAOs that I see. People are willing to work harder for uh, in order to try and impress wealthy investors, not because they're interested necessarily in what the DAO is doing, although they might be very interested in that, but more because they want to impress that investor in order to get that investor to invest in their startup, right? So like you see all these uh, thought leaders tweeting, like it's so easy, you just tell the volunteers to run your DAO and then they just want to volunteer and do it. And like the answer is like, yes, sir, people want your attention and they are willing to spend their time hoping that someday when they call you up, you might write them a check. And it's extremely different than if you were to have like a DAO based on like, you know, a puppy rescue, you know, or something that people are not associating with future wealth for themselves. So like, it's been really interesting to watch the dynamics in terms of volunteer labor and unpaid labor and even paid or compensated labor by stipends, depending on what long-term value the person is going to get from that. Like, do they think this token is going to moon and that's why they're willing to work for a lower rate right now? Or is it that they're just like super excited about whatever protocol you're making. There's just a huge spectrum in terms of uh, how people are willing to participate in DAOs. And in jobs, we understand like you pay, like this is the rate that's considered competitive and I will work for that and I won't work for anything beneath. In DAOs, people will work for free or for less, depending on what long-term value they can see getting from being involved with that community. I'm, I'm listening to you and it, it really strikes me that it looks like you chose all the hardest path <laughs> you could yes. in this. Like you're, you, you chose an annual printed magazine that is physically printed and then physically shipped to the stores yes. or readers' addresses. You have a kind of a niche topic, which is cool, but still a kind of niche. Yes. And you're running a Bitcoin DAO, which has, I guess, no financial incentives for their participants to, uh, to, to be in other than, you know, kind of the, the fun of it, the interest of the community. And still, you know, uh, even though these are all very far from mainstream, you managed to do quite a successful crypto fundraiser. There at the moment are no token incentives. There's no tokenomics involved with my DAO, but that does not mean there's no financial incentive. Being able to manage your own Bitcoin has a financial incentive. People paid $1,000 to get skin in the game in order to become a key holder, except for one person who volunteered for a straight up year from the minute that we ran the Gitcoin campaign through to production and exactly wanted to be accessible. And we were like, you know, you keep showing up, putting in hard work. We want you to be able to join these key holders. Um, what they're managing is a pool of a small amount of Bitcoin, really nothing to shake a stick at. Like, you could sell uh, an NFT for more money than this. But I, I want to humble brag a little bit about something. The beautiful cover photo for this magazine, because we negotiated with the photographer for her to be paid in cryptocurrency, cost us $200. $200 for a professional fashion photo shoot. Like when you're working within the Bitcoin economy, some people will be willing to be more flexible on their pricing. And a small amount of money can actually do something pretty cool. So even though the pool of money that they are dealing with in the Bitcoin multi-sig is small, um, I wouldn't say that there's no financial incentive. They're gaining access to Bitcoin and to a network of freelancers and people who are willing to work for Bitcoin that they didn't previously have access to. And they're getting a year worth of education so that if they want to continue further in this space, 
they'll be able to be managing their own funds and earning Bitcoin directly if they choose. I think there's a huge financial incentive in wanting to learn how to earn and manage Bitcoin by yourself. So I guess the way that that relates to your question about, you know, doing everything the hard way, very true, is because sometimes the hard way is doing it the right way, like the way that you get long-term value. When we crowdfunded with ETH, we got $37,000. So I actually have never done a Bitcoin crowdfunding campaign for Defem as the magazine. I've only done it personally for myself. And that was even before the magazine started, really. And I was able to crowdfund $300 worth of Bitcoin after a year's worth of labor learning about BTC Pay Server. So if you can see the difference between crowdfunding Bitcoin and crowdfunding Ethereum, it's night and day. So I'm not anti-using Ethereum. I'm very happy to, for people who would like to pay in Ethereum or to use NFTs as cool collectibles or holiday cards, by all means, pour money into a pool and we convert it when needed into Bitcoin for long-term storage, just because that feels more secure and manageable. Ethereum is much more for marketing and fundraising and things that people want to play with, as opposed to like the long-term financial plans of the community. It's a long answer. So I guess just one last thing, speaking to like crowdfunding and how to, I guess, earn Bitcoin or earn cryptocurrency in general is the, the fundamental of your question. I think the, one of the really cool things about cryptocurrency is it allows you to reach a, a niche audience that's globally distributed, that's really passionate. So you can do something that's super weird and niche and find people who want to fund that thing. So really allowing yourself to think big and then thinking about like, what are the tools that will make it easiest for people who want to financially support that project to, to do so? So for our first magazine, that case was Gitcoin. Maybe in the future, we'll start using BTC Pay Server more for that. Based on my experience with it, it's, it's pretty challenging, but not impossible. So just thinking about what is the easiest way for me to accept and transact with, with cryptocurrency and then let yourself go wild and see if there's anyone else in the world who likes both cryptocurrency and this weird niche thing that you want to do. I have to ask you about the magazine because I, I, mean, I love magazines and, and we all grew up with them and they're great, but I mean, it does cost more to produce. It does oh cost God, more yes. to send it out. Yes. So why, why did you do that? Because the experience that someone will have reading offline without the distraction of Twitter will be completely different than the experience someone will do reading a a digital product. We do have a free online newsletter. Uh, The amount of people who read it start to, to, to back is probably very low, but I will have people who told me they read this entire magazine cover to cover. They went to the beach, you know, or something like that. And so I wanted to be able to give people the experience of learning about something quite intimidating, actually. And the best way to set them up for success is to get them offline when they're learning. Right. So they're less distracted, I guess. Yes, exactly that. Yeah. I was just uh, wondering about the sort of publishing schedule going forward. If you could just tell the listeners about that. Oh, yeah. So if I'm not mistaken, Bitcoin Magazine, which I would say is the leading print publication in this industry, uh, was annual for a decade before they just recently went quarterly in uh, this year. So I think that's a wise move. This is uh, still a growing audience and publishing annually makes sense to me. It's also, as you mentioned, extremely expensive in terms of printing and distribution. (laughs) The pandemic supply chain issues did not help with that matter. So I think once a year, especially with a decentralized method that takes longer to produce, frankly, than hiring a team of professional journalists, I think annual is a really good fit for this community. It's interesting that uh, you mentioned cool thing about crypto fundraiser is that it doesn't matter where you are, people from all over the world can participate. 
and you can participate in something people on a totally different, uh, you know, on another end of the world are doing. But there is one thing recently, I guess you noticed it too, that even the crypto global, and as we love to say, uh, censorship resistant realm became to some extent politicized and also subject to geopolitics like sanctioned. There have been at least a couple of fundraising campaigns uh, related to Iranians that have been either shut down or the, the, the programs were stopped because you have also covered a lot of stories about the parts of the world that have to deal with this. How do you see this evolving going forward? Because it doesn't look like politics are going away. I completely agree with you that as long as the humans are around, politics is not going away. And I'm really glad you brought up this topic because I'm interested to, to hear also from you as I'm sure you're gaining a new perspective in, from Russia as you're thinking about like, girl, right now, Iranians are the ones, Russians might be next. And you have to, to think about when we're working in a global community, the fact that everyone is going to have different compliance issues on the ground and different compliance issues interacting with each other. You know, like I've sometimes worked with both uh, Palestinian and Israeli Bitcoiners and like, is it illegal for them to do certain things together? Would it be, is it wise for them to do it publicly? Probably not. So you have to be thinking about that when thinking about a global community. We had in our magazine a few contributors from Russia, and it was really interesting to hear about if they're working with international clients and, and communities like us, how they have to deal with the difference in banking requirements. It was super annoying. And I'm not one to force cryptocurrency on someone ever, if that's not what they want. And so we paid the photographer, for example, in cryptocurrency. Um, they're one of the Russians we worked with did not want cryptocurrency. I loved it. She was like, I want real money thing. And I, and I was like, hard disk, drag me, drag me, but okay. Um, but then, you know, that's exactly what we're about, though. It's if we're really about financial freedom, and then we need to be meeting people where they're at with the tools they're at, which can mean needing to get someone dollars or rubles. If like someone needs to want to value cryptocurrency and feel safe transacting with it in their particular environment. So I guess that's going on a weird tangent, but kind of to wrap it around and say that Power has always been political. Money has always been political. So politics is never going to be taken out of our money system. And part of something that I'm really excited about with Defem is learning together with a bunch of different women in different jurisdictions with different circumstances, how it is that we can operate with the most agency that we can in our um, individual power dynamic. You know, my situation will be different than yours will be different from Ben's. I think it's refreshing that you, you say that it's about financial freedom rather than about Bitcoin per se. And I think that's uh, a good thing to say. People forget the sort of the, the goal rather than the means sometimes. Yeah, that's what it's about, right? Like the, the ability to do what you want without coercion. And sometimes that doesn't involve Bitcoin. Maybe Bitcoin may not be the best tool for that in every circumstance, but it's a very useful tool in a lot of circumstances. So it can be extremely beneficial to learn about the, the wide variety of tools so that you can make a knowing choice when you choose which tool for which circumstance. I think it's, it's really cool. It will be really interesting to see how it goes, uh, you know, go, going forward in the future. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thanks very much for joining us today, Lee. And you can check out this uh, great magazine, Defem. It's at defemmagazine.com. And uh, you should say it with the proper French accent uh, with that. It's not Desvem or something. So, uh, <laughs> Absolutely should practice good French accent. That's yeah, for the fun accent. of it. Yep. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be watching from afar and hopefully you're uh, right for Coindesk again someday. We miss you. Definitely. Miss you Thank guys you, too. Lee. Take care. Take care.
Okay, guys, uh, we're going to close out the show now. And that was the great uh, Lee Quinn. And that was Anna Bedakova. And I'm Ben Schiller. And this is Opinionated. See you all next week. You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller, Anna Badakova, and guest Lee Quinn. Today's show is produced, announced, and edited by Michelle Mousseau with additional production support from Eleanor Paul. Our theme song is by Ellison. Have any questions or comments? We would love to hear from you, so please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, opinionated. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.